0: December 28, 1978, United Airlines Flight 173 uh, lifted off from New York en route to Portland, Oregon via Denver. There were 181 people on board. Uh, Captain McBroom was at the helm of the aircraft. He had decades of piloting experience, including more than 5,500 hours on the particular kind of plane that he was flying. They were carrying with them 50% more fuel than was required for the journey, meaning that they could fly for an additional 65 minutes uh, if they needed to. Now, as they approached Portland, Captain McBroom decided it was time to lower the landing gear. And when the landing gear was coming down on the right side, one of the pistons broke. And so the landing gear, instead of slowly sliding into place, fell with a, a thud and, 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 uh, and came down and opened. The the, the pilot and the, the flight crew in the cockpit heard a thump and the aircraft veered to the right momentarily before stabilizing itself. But the light that normally comes on when the landing gear is down and locked in place didn't come on. And so the captain was unsure, are my wheels down or not? Now, The good thing was that this is a problem that if you flew past the airport, someone could look up and tell you if your wheels are down. And so they flew past the airport, the wheels were down, but they didn't know if the wheels were locked in place or if some of the other functions that come with the landing gear would actually work when they landed. So what they did is in the, in the uh, cockpit, they took their big manual, big giant book of checklists and things to do when things go wrong, things to make sure of. The captain took charge. There was questions being asked by everybody who was in the cockpit. Some of them were answered, some of them weren't. It was a little bit chaotic, but they started working their way through the checklist. The captain sent the flight attendants back into the plane to tell the passengers, this is what's going on. Uh, and actually teaching them the brace position because they thought if we land and the wheels actually uh, are not locked in place, we might end up sliding down the runway. But chances are no one's going to, um, they might get hurt, but there won't be any loss of life from that kind of a scenario. So we just need to train them to know what's going on. We need to keep everybody calm, going through the checklist, communicating with the, the uh, airport and, and uh, trying to figure out what the solution might be. They were flying around Portland. Finally, they decided we're gonna try and come in for a landing. And as they did so, the flight tower radioed them and said, there's actually another plane inbound. Do you want us to send that plane up for another loop or do you wanna take another loop? And they said, you know what, we'll yield to this plane. They can land first. So they did another lap around Portland. And as they came in to land the second time, the same thing happened. Another plane was coming and Captain McBroom said, you know what, let them go first. We don't know what the situation's gonna be once we land. So let them get on the ground and we'll do another lap. By the time they did this other lap, they had been in the air for 70 minutes longer than they were planning to, 70 minutes past the time that they were supposed to land. And in this last journey around Portland, as they were going to uh, prepare to actually finally land the plane, someone had the sense to look at the fuel gauge and recognize they were out of fuel. Two of the engines at that point quit. And they radioed ahead to the tower saying, we're not sure we're going to make it to the airport, but we see this highway, maybe we'll land there instead. And at that point, the other two engines quit and they radioed in a mayday to the Portland airport. United Flight 73 crashed into two empty houses and plowed through a bunch of trees, killing 10 people on board and 24 more were injured. All because they didn't pay attention to the most important gauge that they had on the plane. It's a tragic story. It's a story that could have entirely been avoided if someone had just had the presence of mind to look at that most important gauge. Now, were the other issues important? Of course they were. They needed to check on the landing gear. They needed to go through their checklist. They needed to prepare the passengers. They needed to communicate with the tower. But if a plane has no fuel, it can't fly. They forgot the most important thing. Today we're ending our series that we've called Together, focusing on unity in the church. And our big idea today is simply this, the church will experience unity as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus. The church will experience unity as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is our fuel gauge. And there are many other things that we could talk about today in our world, but none of them matter. If we've taken our eyes off of Christ, we started this series back in September by looking at Ephesians three ten, which uh, tells us, so Paul tells us there, that the unity of, of the church is used by God to display God's manifold and multifaceted wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm. That there's a, a dimension to our unity that goes beyond what we can even see. So when we talk about unity in the church, we're not talking about it so that we can feel warm and fuzzy towards one another. We're talking about it because there are cosmic implications to it. And so we want to participate in what God is doing through the unity of the church. Then as we've studied through Ephesians 4, we've learned some pretty significant truths. We've Learn that unity is something that Christ gives to us. It's something that he has accomplished through the cross. And through the cross, the dividing wall between people has been taken down. And there can be unity between people who are very different from one another under the common banner of Christ and in the family of God. So it's something that's given to us by Christ. Something that can't be added to or taken away from. But it's also something that we're called to maintain. Paul writes that we're supposed to to regularly live in the, the manner of our new self. That Christ has given to us, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, and so we're to put on certain actions and behaviors that lead to unity and take off certain actions and behaviors that lead to disunity. And so we come to today, the last day of this series, and here's what I want to do. I want to start in Matthew 16, but also visit three other passages of Scripture and give you some of the thoughts that, that are going through my mind and, and that God is showing to me as I've been in prayer about these things that I think we need to remember as we leave this series. I, I don't know about you, but I, I think for me, the last couple of months have been the hardest part of the whole pandemic. Now, maybe I've said that at other points of the pandemic as well, um, and, and my recency bias is making me think that this is the hardest. But I felt this has been very challenging. There's been a lot of joy in the fact that we can meet together in person and continue to provide online services. But there's also been confusion and, and uncertainty about what the right things to do are. It, it is, it's a challenge for me when I look around and I see people who I respect and who I look up to, people who have a deep, intimate walk with Christ, people who have spent a lot of time praying about their response to the situation we're in as a world, and then to see these people end up in totally different places. But right? You've seen this in your own life too, probably. So what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to, to handle that, especially when we have decisions to make? And so this is what I want to do today. I want to tell you four things I know for sure we're not going to know everything about COVID. We're not going to know everything about a lot of things. But here's four things that we can know for sure. And if we hold on to these four things, we're going to set ourselves up well to handle whatever comes in the right way. So the first one is this. Jesus builds his church. Jesus builds his church. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus that builds his church. He Jesus says this uh, to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, in this powerful passage, Jesus uh, pulls his disciples away from the crowds and he says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the disciple, or that he was the Messiah, rather. So, Jesus makes a very profound statement here in, in that he is going to establish his church. He will do it. This is the work of Christ himself. And he, he says something to Peter that's very interesting. He uses some wordplay here, actually. Peter's name in Aramaic is Cephas, which means rock and Peter in Greek is is the word petros, which means rock in Greek. And so Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, you are the rock, the original rock, not Dwayne Johnson, the rock, the original rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now there's lots of debate as to what Jesus means when he says on this rock, I will build my church. Does he mean he'll build the church on Peter himself? Does he mean that he'll build the church on the group of disciples or perhaps the believing community of disciples? Does he mean he'll build his church on the rock of Peter's confession, this true identity of who Jesus actually is? Or is it some combination of all of those ideas? The the point that I really want us to see, though, is that Jesus is the one who builds the church. He will build it, and he will build it in a way that it will not be overcome. I mean, he says that it will not be overcome by Hades. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, Hades is a term we often translate as hell, what we're looking at here in Jewish thought is the realm of death, the realm of evil, will not overcome the church. There's a, a solidity to the church that Jesus built that, that cannot be toppled. Now, this idea of the, the gates of hell uh, has always been a little confusing to me. Larry Osborne, a pastor and author, uh, explained it in a way that, that made a lot of sense to me a couple of years ago. He, he, he wrote about it like this. When you hear this, this verse, the gates of hell will not overcome the church, We can often have this picture of that the church is on the defensive, that we're just trying to endure the attack of the enemy, that we just have to hunker down and and join together and and hope that we can survive. It's almost like there's a tornado coming and we're going down into the cellar and the tornado blows over. And once it's gone, we come out and our house is gone and there's a big mess, but we're just happy to be alive. And Osborne points out that this is the wrong idea. When you think about gates, gates are not an offensive weapon. You know, no army ever has said, let's pick up our gates and go attack the enemy. Gates are a defensive uh, uh, weapon or a defensive uh, item, right? It's in the, the wall of the city is the gate. It's meant to keep people out. So Osborne says this, the idea of Christians hunkered down while Satan batters us with the gates of hell would have been a ludicrous idea to the people of Jesus' day. They knew what gates were for. They wouldn't have thought for a moment that the gates of hell couldn't defeat us. They would have understood that the gates of hell can't hold us back. The difference is huge. One leads to a cowering, defensive, hold on for dear life approach to life and faith. The other leads to an optimistic, confident, give me your best shot approach to life and faith. One panics and despairs when things go wrong. The other stands strong and hopeful no matter what the current scoreboard says. Listen, I think there's a reaction among some in the church at large, not just our church, the church at large where we're looking at COVID and we think we're on the defensive and we just have to protect what we have. We have to, we have to, to fortify ourselves against, you know, whatever it might be the, the government or, or overreach or loss of our freedom or whatever we have, we're on the defensive. And that leads us to a posture uh, of uncertainty, of, of nervousness, of anxiety that we're going to lose something. When I think when, when we understand what Jesus is saying here, that he is going to build his church, we have no reason to be anxious or nervous. Some of those things that we, we might think might happen may come, come to pass. Right? We might lose freedoms as the church moves forward through the next decades. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't building his church. It doesn't mean that Jesus has abandoned us. We have no reason to be afraid in this moment of the situation that we're in. Just like we don't have to be afraid that there are people who think differently than us within the church, right? I think sometimes there's an uneasiness that, oh, we're part of the same church, but we think very differently, so how could we ever be united? No, Jesus builds his church. Jesus gives us what we need in order to be a part of what he's doing, and so there's no reason to fear. Jesus is not sitting in heaven anxious and wondering if the church is going to survive covid Jesus is sitting in a place of authority and using this for our good. And Jesus gives that spiritual authority to the church and expects us to use it. And he, through his grace, gives us gifts that we ought to use in order to do our part in building up the body of Christ. So the first thing we know for sure is that Jesus builds his church. And he's doing so even today. The second thing that we need to remember and that we know for sure is that we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is not COVID. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing. COVID's important to be sure, but remember, Jesus is our fuel gauge. COVID might be a landing gear issue. It's important to talk about. There are discussions that need to be had, and there are things that we need to discuss and decide, but it's not the main thing. And as soon as we make it the main thing, we're going we're gonna to crash the plane. Keeping our eyes on Christ is the most important thing. Now, I want to pause here and just say, like, I know that some of you would like me and like the church to be more explicit when it comes to some of these things. Like, what is the church's position on vaccines or passports or, or masks? Like, what exactly should we think about this? And sometimes when people say that to me, well, there's a few, few things that people could be thinking when they say that to me. One of the things they might be thinking is, I want the church to affirm what I think is right. And I'll feel better about that once the church does that. The second thing people might be wanting to think is, if the church says this, then I'm gone because I disagree with that. The third thing might be people are just saying, I want more clarity in how I personally should think about this and the church could help me understand it a little bit better. I have never felt a freedom from the spirit to stand in front of you and say, this is exactly how you should think about these things because I believe they're open-handed issues. There are believers who are Bible-believing, Christ-loving people who think very differently. Even listening now or in the room when we gather in person on Sunday mornings, there's different perspectives. And that could make us afraid and fearful, or it could just be something that we accept as something that we need to work through as part of the unity journey that we're on. When we fix our eyes on the issue, we very easily get distracted. We very easily get angry with one another. We very easily cease to understand other people. When we keep our eyes on Christ, we're able to keep the main thing the main thing. This is how the author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 12. and lose heart. So we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we do, he gives us the perseverance to carry on. Let me tell you, if your eyes are firmly fixed on COVID, you will very easily get weary and discouraged and want to give up on the church. If your eyes are fixed on, on COVID, you will be tired and anxious all of the time. But if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, he provides you with peace. And he gives you strength. And he gives you wisdom. And so we need to lift high the name of Jesus. We need to celebrate Jesus together. Let me say that superficial Christianity will not last through COVID. It won't. It's not strong enough to do so. So let me just ask you this. Where are your eyes focused? What are you looking at? Are your eyes firmly fixed on Christ or are you distracted? What are you filling your mind and your heart and your soul with? Uh, Jordan Raynar uh, makes these points about the distractions that we face. He says, three things happened in 2007. All of them are related, you'll see. First, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, ushering in a future in which the lack of a smartphone is almost unheard of in the developed world. Second, Americans started a 10-year 59% decrease in productivity compared to the previous decade. And third, seemingly out of nowhere, anxiety and other mental health issues exploded around the globe, especially in teenagers. (laughs) Can you see how the distraction of our phones and everything that comes with it can easily pull us off course? According to Time Magazine, he continues, more than half of Americans say the news causes them stress and many report feeling anxiety, fatigue, or sleep loss as a result. Yet one in 10 adults checks the news every hour And fully 20% of Americans report constantly monitoring their social media feeds, which often exposes them to the latest headlines, whether they like it or not. The the news is not producing peace in us. Uh, In her book, Reclaiming Conversation, Sherry Turkle of MIT says that increased time on social media correlates with a measurable loss of empathy, the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. And isn't that what happens when you see something on social media that that is different than what you think? Rather than entering into it to understand, often we fortify our defenses against it. We're lacking empathy. All of this leads Ed Stetzer to say, if cable news, or maybe we should insert social media here too, if cable news is keeping you from unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, turn it off, unplug it, unsubscribe it, and prioritize your church over cable or over social media have face-to-face conversations with one another, even when they're challenging, even when they're hard. That's how we develop unity and trust. So what do we know for sure? We know that Jesus is building his church. We know we need to keep our eye on the main thing. And thirdly, we need to remind ourselves that Satan is our enemy, but we also need to watch out for friendly fire. (laughs) Satan is our enemy and beware of friendly fire. When I was in seminary, my wife and I lived on a chicken farm for two and a half years, uh, working part-time. And uh, we, lived, we raised organic broilers. And one of the things about raising organic chickens, at least at the level we were, is that the birds need to have access to outside. So during the spring and the summer and the fall months, there is a, a field next to the barn that they could go outside. There's little chicken doors that are two feet by two feet that open automatically in the morning. And after the sun goes down, the chickens all come inside and they lower down again interestingly not very many of the chickens were actually interested in going outside but they could if they wanted to. Now one day in the evening Jenny was out doing uh, checks on the barns like we did every night and she looked into one of the barns and about two-thirds of the way down the barn she noticed that there was a hawk sitting on the water line inside the barn. Now there were hawks and owls that flew around and every once in a while they'd dive into the field and emerge with a one of our precious chickens in their talons and fly away. This hawk had been audacious enough to go through the chicken door from the outside into the inside and was sitting among the flock. Like, think about the place to be if you are a hawk. So Jenny tried to get this thing out of the barn and she couldn't do it. So she called me and I went out and it took me probably half an hour or 45 minutes to get this hawk to fly out the end door of the barn. And it didn't want to leave. And I don't blame it. I mean, where else would you want to be if you were a hawk than in the chicken barn surrounded by the chickens? I just imagine it planning, like I'm going to take that one first and then I'm going to go for that one. And when I'm hungry, I'll move over there. And now, imagine if you were a chicken in the barn. The enemy is sitting right there. The hawk is sitting right there. Imagine if you turned your back to that hawk and started fighting with your fellow chickens as if they were the enemy. Arguing with them, fighting with them as chickens do hitting themselves with their wings and scratching each other, ignoring the danger that's right behind you. That would be ludicrous. The enemy is clear. You see where I'm going with this? We are the chickens. And the devil is the hawk. COVID is not the hawk. The devil is the hawk. But what the devil would like to do is to cause us to be fighting with one another. You know, it's an interesting question that's been raised from time to time, like, was, was COVID something that God brought about, or was it something that the enemy brought about? My answer is, I don't know. But what I know for sure is that God is wanting to use this for the good of the flock, and Satan is wanting to use it to sow disunity among the flock. Satan is our enemy. This is how Peter describes the enemy in uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion or perhaps a hawk, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So, Satan is the enemy, and he wants to keep us divided. He wants to keep us focused on the wrong things. Uh, This picture was used uh, to me in a slightly different context. I'm going to adapt it a little bit, but it's the picture of friendly fire in war. You know what friendly fire is, right? It's when you go into war, and and the person who dies is actually killed by members of their own army, accidentally, accidentally. There's one stat that says 2 to 20% of all casualties in all wars were the result of friendly fire. Now, 2 to 20% is a pretty big range, but you know, think about it in the middle. Like 10-11% of, of people who died in war were killed by friendly fire, by their own soldiers, their own teammates. Friends, I think far too many well-intentioned Christians have wounded each other throughout the COVID experience. It might have been well-intentioned to make a point about COVID or this is how we should respond to COVID, but instead of doing so with love or compassion or grace, it's been done with anger or resentment or bitterness. And it's like you're shooting an arrow into the back of your Christian brother or sister. And we've got to stop that. We've got to stop that. We know that there are a range of strongly held opinions. One thing that encouraged me a lot the other day was I heard of someone who believed this way who sat down with someone who believed this way, diametrically opposed in how they thought about what's going on. And they had a conversation and they shared with one another why they think the way that they think. And the report I got back was, I trusted this person more when, when we left than when we sat down together. What a, what a beautiful thing that we can have that kind of thing. That is how unity is built. You know, sometimes we think about how are we going to solve the the unity problem on the big scale of this side versus this side. We're, We're not going to come to positions that everybody agrees on as a church in terms of policy and statement. But we can build unity as one person and one person sit down with each other and talk and with love and grace and compassion for one another, share their heart with one another. And we'll grow to trust one another and love one another well. So what do we know for sure? We know that Jesus builds his church. We we know that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. We know that Satan is our enemy. And then lastly, we know that we need each other. We know that we need each other. We cannot do this alone. One of the things I think is most unfortunate in all of this is the uh, preconceptions of what other people must think about me. Uh, when, we, when we have, you know, position A and position B, people who believe in position B think that the people in position A think that they're, you know, not very smart or unbiblical and vice versa. People in position A think that people, people in this position B must think this about me. And sometimes the message that's received from somebody else is not the message that is sent. There are assumptions about how people view us. And when I think, when I assume that you don't like me or that you think I'm not very smart or that you think I'm unbiblical, when I, when I put that on you, there's a barrier between us that doesn't actually need to be there. We need each other. We can't do it alone. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's building this beautiful analogy between the human body and the church. And at one point, verse 21, he says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. In the human body, we we need each other. And just like in the church, we need each other. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this uh, in one of his books. I thought this was fascinating to read from C.S. Lewis. Uh, He says this When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to churches and gospel halls. He said, I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth rate poems set to sixth rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit in it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different educations. And then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which he says parenthetically, were just sixth-rate music. His opinion didn't change in that way. I realized that the hymns were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to even clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. I thought that was fascinating because often when, when we come into contact with someone who thinks differently than we do, what do we do? We get defensive and fortify our, our, our defense, our position. This is why I'm right and you're wrong. But Lewis says, when I came into contact with these people who believe differently than I do on, on some issues, but I saw how much they loved God and I saw their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, my pride started melting away. That's the kind of humility that we need. We, we need each other. Everybody has a gift to contribute. That's what we learned through Ephesians 4. And everybody has to use it. We need each other. Think back to flight 173 that we talked about at the beginning. There was a re- review of this uh, disaster and why it happened. And this was one of the the outcomes. The safety board believes that this accident exemplifies a recurring problem, a breakdown in cockpit management and teamwork during a situation involving malfunctions of aircraft systems in flight. Therefore, the safety board can only conclude that the flight crew failed to relate the fuel remaining and the rate of fuel flow to the time and distance from the airport because their attention was directed almost entirely toward diagnosing the landing gear problem. It reminds us of what we said earlier, that when our eyes are on the wrong thing, not only do we get distracted from what we need to be doing, but our teamwork also falls apart. Francis Chan says, we need to keep our eyes on the mission. Realize we need each other if we're going to pull this off. We want to be a welcoming, Christ-centered community. That's what our vision states. And in order to do that, we need to be together. I want to actually raise one specific need here. In order for us to be a welcoming Christ-centered community, one of the ways in which we promote that is through small groups, care groups that meet throughout the week. These groups meet to encourage one another, to pray with one another, and to study scripture together. Uh, It's a great way to, to meet other people to be supported in your faith journey. I've been a part of a group for the last four years and It's been remarkable to see the growth in our group and the way in which we depend on each other in prayer and in that kind of support. Currently, we have more than a dozen people who want to be in a care group, but there's no leaders to form new groups. And so I'm putting this plea towards you to say, would, would you pray about whether God is inviting you to start a group? Now, one of the problems or one of the challenges that Bobby and I often face when we talk to people about this is people hear care, care group leader and they think I have to be super spiritually mature. I have to be ready to present a three-point exegetical Bible study every week. And I have to have a house that's neat and tidy and spotless so I can host everybody and make them great food and coffee. That bar is way too high for anybody to to meet. A care group leader needs to be someone who's growing spiritually and someone who has a heart for other people. And all the other details can be figured out in the context of a group. So would you consider uh, stepping forward for that so that other people can experience this kind of community that we want to be at Ross Road Community Church? You can contact myself or Bobby about that. Listen, as we close... Uh, I want to remind us of this—the image that the Lord gave me back in the summer, of, of of how He was looking at us as the church. The church has been through a hard time. There's no denying that COVID has not been easy uh, for the church as as a uh, um, as a community, and for all of the individuals within it. There have been ways in which all of us have struggled, and yet God was saying, "You know, I want to give the church a hug to remind the church that I'm with her." That that I love her, that I care for her, that I see her, that I'm with her. And I think we're experiencing that together. I know the last six or seven weeks have been very intentionally focused on unity and COVID. And sometimes that's been uncomfortable probably to talk about. And and some of you are probably like, that's enough. Let's talk about something else. Uh, And we will moving forward into the next few weeks. We're going to shift our focus. However, COVID is impacting all of us. And if, if our faith cannot address it, then we haven't integrated our faith into every part of our life yet. So as we carry on, let's keep our eyes on Jesus because he is the one who will give us the strength and wisdom to carry through. He is the one who will keep us united. And let me also say a word of affirmation to you as the church. I feel like we have weathered COVID quite well. Uh, Sure, we've had differences of opinion sometimes. That's natural in a family. Our communication has, by and large, been full of grace and seasoned with salt and will continue to be so as we keep our eyes on Christ. I want to close with this quote from Francis Chan and invite you to mull it over as we go into this week. He says this, the Lord in his sovereignty chose for us to live in this time. (laughs) The sovereign Lord chose for us to live in this time. So we must trust that he will give us the grace to navigate this with strength and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we do believe that you have placed us here for such a time as this. And we look to you as the one who will establish us as your church and will establish us as a unified family of God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in such a way that is worthy of the calling that you've given to us, that honors one another. We pray that you would strengthen us in every way as we look to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.